You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. We the Living, celebrating the film's 80-year journey by Duncan Scott. Thank you very much. I, uh, my name is Duncan Scott, and I produced the original authorized version of the film that Ayn Rand authorized, uh, roughly starting around 1970. Uh, and then more recently, I've... Uh, produced this new restored version, which will be shown tonight in a special sneak preview. Um, without being overdramatic, it's really a miracle that this film is here at all. Um, I'll be telling you about the many eventful and uh, dramatic circumstances that the film went through, and about the many heroes who were involved in, in saving the film and making sure it didn't disappear forever. Um, let me give you a little taste of what I'll be talking about. Uh, for starters, the film was opposed by very powerful government forces in Italy, where it was made in 1942. Uh, it then went ahead and was made without authorization from Ayn Rand. In fact, she didn't even have any awareness that the film was being made at all, and only found out after the war and only saw the film for the first time a number of years after the war. Uh, it was filmed under very difficult wartime conditions uh, that really limited how a film could be made. Um, it had controversial scenes that had to be hidden from government authorities. Uh, all, but still in all, it became the biggest grossing film in Italy of 1942. And that is especially extraordinary because the movie was banned at the height of its initial run. So it never even got to finish its initial run, and it still became the biggest grossing film in Italy. Um, a very significant part of the story is that the themes and the uh, scenes in the movie rallied resistance to the fascist government running Italy at the time. And as you can imagine, that wasn't, uh, didn't go over too well. Um, After it was banned, uh, Mussolini ordered that the, all the prints and the negatives be confiscated and destroyed. And so, at that point, it looked like this was going to be definitely the end for this movie. Fortunately, there were heroes that stepped up right at that point, taking some very risky action, and I'll get into that uh, when we get to that part of the story. Then the film was lost for decades. Uh, after being hidden, it was, after the war it was not hidden, but then for a variety of reasons the film became lost. Decades went by, and then it was finally rediscovered. And again, some heroic actions uh, took place at that point. So, uh, my part in the we, long We the Living journey uh, started when I was a very young man. Uh, it began while I was working alongside Ayn Rand, to create this new authorized version of the film. And that was 53 years ago. Uh, and you know what? The work still isn't done. It's still ongoing. There's still more we're going to do with this film. Um, I wanted to ask a question before we go much further. I've had some discussion with my colleagues about how many people have actually seen uh, We the Living in its current 
unrestored version. Well, let me, let me put the question in another way. Thank you for being quick with your hands. <laughs> How many people have not ever seen We the Living in any version? There are a lot of heroes, as I said, uh, that were responsible in saving this movie and making it possible for to all of us to be here tonight to watch it. And of course, first and foremost, is Ayn Rand herself. Um, the movie's based on her, her novel. Um, and, I, and I would call it heroic in that she wrote this novel. Um, she uh, very clearly laid out the evils of communism during the Red Decade when nobody wanted to hear it. And uh, it faced, the book faced a lot of rejection, uh, eventually did get published, but critics were dismissive. Um, and of course, it was her first novel, and you can imagine what that, that meant to her. Um, it's also a very important to note that, uh, unlike any of her other novels, it was very uh, personal. It was drawn very heavily from her own life experiences. And in fact, uh, she later wrote that it was as close to an autobiography as I will ever write. And uh, that's also something to keep in mind when you see what uh, people did with the property and her lack of involvement in, in the movie when it was initially made. So, uh, uh, one more thing to say about her uh, version of the book. I'm amazed by her grasp of, her mastery of English at this early point in having come to America. Um, and you, you must read the book. If you've only read, uh, only read Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead, you have to add We the Living to it. Um, it's very different than those novels. Um, I would describe it as the most heartfelt novel that she's ever written. Uh, not to say that that's not a component of her other novels, but she, you definitely get the sense of drawing from things that impacted her very personally uh, early in her life. It also has I, uh, one, of, one of the most remarkable uh, sections of writing that I've ever seen, which is at the end of the novel. I can't say too much about it without it being a spoiler for those who don't know the, the living story. But the final chapter uh, really captures the main character, Kira's sense of life, in the most profound and deepest and most beautiful way. I've always been blown away by that final chapter, so you definitely owe it to yourself to, to read the novel. So, uh, it was published in around 1936. It was not very successful. Um, over the entire, uh, I think, 18 months, uh, they printed 3,000 copies and they eventually sold them out. The publisher didn't, uh, they reused the type. They basically destroyed the, uh, um, you know, the typeset, so there was no way to go into a second edition. Uh, Ayn Rand earned a, a big $100 from that initial release of the book. But the book did better in other countries. Um, this is the Italian version, published not long after the American. It also uh, did well in England and Denmark, from what I understand. Um, the Italian readers uh, really took to it. Um, I'm not, uh, I think, probably for the same reasons that I'll talk about why they took to the movie. 
One of the readers of the book was the daughter of a man that uh, ran a film studio. Uh, his name was Michelle Scalera. I, I don't have the daughter's exact name, but she loved the book. And you would think uh, if she got this notion that the book would make a great movie, she would run to her father and say, you know, Dad, you should make a movie out of this. But she felt that he might not, he was, you know, being another generation, he may, might not understand it the way she did. And she went to a uh, general manager of the studio, a man named Massimo Ferrara, who also plays a very significant role in saving the movie later on, and basically said, you're young, you know, you take it to him and uh, convince them to make a movie out of it. So that's basically the beginnings of the idea to make a movie of it. Uh, a very big complication of making movies in Italy was that uh, the fascists controlled Italy, and they controlled every industry, including the movie industry. Uh, so everything had to be approved by the fascists. Everything was overseen by the fascists. Um, and this, I think, led to a really amazing irony that uh, someone had to advocate for making this movie uh, with the fascists. There was, it was already recognized that the storyline and the themes were controversial, um, but the movie wouldn't have been made if somebody didn't step up and say, you know, we got to do this movie. So, this was a gigantic irony that the person who stepped up was this man, who happens to be, his name is Vittorio, and his last name is Mussolini. He, he was the son of the dictator, Benito Mussolini, and a I don't know whether to say an aspiring uh, filmmaker, a wannabe filmmaker, or early in his career filmmaker. He did, do, he did have some credits. Um, and he, We the Living would not have been made if he hadn't interceded and said, yeah, the storyline's controversial, but it'll be fine. You, we got to make this movie. He was, uh, this is the Mussolini men, uh, the dictator in the middle and Vittorio on the right. And uh, so, the approval was granted for the movie to be made. Yeah. He, he loved being in the movie business and got to meet celebrities and so forth. So, then we get to a big problem. They decide they want to make the movie, and then normally the next thing you would do is get the literary rights to, to the property, but Ayn Rand was an American, Italy was at war with America. There was really no legal channel to use to get the literary rights. And so really what the producers should have done is say, well, we can't do this movie now. We'll have to pick something else to do. But instead, they basically decided to steal it. Uh, they would just go ahead and do the movie, and you know, the war was on, and we'd you know, just sort of see the consequences and figure things out after the war. Um, I spoke with the, this man, Anton Majano, uh, in the late 80s. And I got, by the way, I got a lot of the details about We the Living from this man, from Rosano Brazzi, one of the stars of the movie, um, and the Massimo Ferrara, who I interviewed in the late 80s, 
who was the head of the studio, all three of them were just very intimately involved in everything that happened in the movie, uh, making of the movie, and it was a gold mine for getting uh, information. So Mujano here said very bluntly, we cheated. We, we stole the property and we went ahead to make it. And we began all the elaborate preparations for making the film. It's an epic film, uh, a very large scale. In fact, it turned out to be the largest scale movie ever made in Italy up to that time. Cast uh, in the, were the leading stars of Italy. All three of the major uh, players were huge stars in Italy. Um, Vasco Giacchetti is not a name that's well known here, but he was very big in Italy. He was kind of the uh, John Wayne of Italy. Uh, virile and tough, but yet uh, he could be very sympathetic, as you'll, you'll see in We the Living. Uh, in fact, I would say he, he really breaks your heart by the end of the movie. And this is Rosano Brazzi, um, also a big leading man by that time. He mostly had done swashbuckling parts. We the Living was very important to him, he told me, because it established him as a serious actor. And he was very good in it. He has uh, the very difficult challenge of a character arc that goes from being very sympathetic to uh, getting bitter and disillusioned and uh, rejectful of, of everything going on by the end. Uh, it's quite an arc, uh, character arc for him to travel, and, and he did an amazing job. Um, he did many, many movies over the years, and a few in English that some of you of a certain age might be familiar with. Um, three, three Coins in the Fountain and, uh, and this one, South Pacific, the musical. Um, so he was a pretty well-known figure in America, you know, the late 50s through the 60s, and then his American phase of his career kind of uh, faded away. Um, in my interview with him, he said he loved playing the character of Leo, that he, uh, he was a nice, good son of a bitch. <laughs> um, the other interesting thing about him is he's so, he'd been so iconic in the Italian film industry, and yet nobody had written a, a biography of him. Uh, and my executive producer, Lynn Florkowitz, uh, saw that situation, and she has written a biography that will be coming out soon, a full book-length biography, which is going to be fascinating because Brazzi was involved with the Italian resistance even during the filming of We the Living. And after We the Living, he completely quit the movie industry and, and was in the full time uh, in the resistance. He was arrested a number of times. He faced a firing squad a number of times. Um, definitely a huge hero um, and a, a brilliant performance in this film. And finally, uh, Alita Valley, who's the heart and soul of the movie. She, too, was an icon of, of Italian uh, film industry. Her career lasted many, many decades. Um, I've seen a number of other films that she's been in, and I, I would argue that what We the Living and the part of Kira was the most demanding part that she ever had, and she, and she uh, was br amazing in it. Um, the, uh, also, a range of emotions and... Uh, feelings that had to be portrayed, uh, and power and passion, and it was all there. Um, and her, her career went on right, right through the 1990s. So I spoke with her briefly and, and got some background on that. Um, 
She was very, very popular in Italy, constantly doing interviews on the cover of fan magazines. Uh, a, few a few English language films, one of the ones that is a must-see is The Third Man. It's a classic film. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you, you owe it to yourself to seek that out. It's, it was a British film uh, with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton. Uh, very, very uh, memorable film. She also did a film for Hitchcock and a few other American films, but then she went back to Italy and uh, the rest of her career was basically in Europe. So at this point, We the Living was set to go into production. It had an all-star cast. Uh, the proportions were, were really epic. It, it, this was a, a period film set in Russia. They had to recreate St. Petersburg uh, on sound stages in Rome. Um, but it was all really good to go except for one problem. These two guys. They were assigned to write the screenplay. And they, in, in addition to not being screenplay writers, there was, they were kind of in the literary realm in Italy, uh, highfalutin end of it, not, not so much dealing with a, a film adaptation. And uh, it was considered very prestigious that they were hired to do the screenplay, but they got very creative uh, in not a good way. Uh, one, I'll just give you one example. In We the Living, Kira aspires to be an engineer, And uh, you'll see in the movie, she says things like, steel is steel, and uh, it's the only profession where I don't have to lie. These, these writers decided they would make her a ballerina. <laughs> uh, and that there was a lot more like that. Uh, fortunately, the director stepped in. He, he had been working on another movie in another country. When he came back, he looked at the script and said, this, this is impossible. We're not even going to have these guys rewrite the script. We're just going to throw this out and start over from scratch. Um, the only problem is they had to go into production right away. The sets were built. The cast and the crew were hired. Everything was in place. The, there was too much momentum in making a movie of that size to stop and wait for a new script to be written. So what to do? Again, this gentleman I mentioned before, who was an assistant director, Uh, this is a, sort of a strange assignment to get, but he was assigned to start writing the dialogue. And the only way this, this was going to work, that they could proceed, is for him to write pages of dialogue as they were filming. And in many cases, the actors only got their scripts uh, a couple of days or even a day before they were supposed to film it. I mean, the technicians and the set builders and everything, they knew what, uh, what scenes were coming up, but the dialogue was uh, being written really way just before things were happening. But that turns out to be a good thing, because he was drawing from the book, and there was no time to be creative. Uh, and the book and the movie was therefore much, much more faithful to the book. Um, he's there uh, flipping through pages, writing the dialogue, adapting it in ways that you have to for a movie but basically sticking to the, to the book. And that's something you rarely ever see when, movies, uh, when books are adapted for the screen. Um, so with that in place, now filming for We the Living could begin. And 
So here we had just to summarize the situation. This movie's going into production. With it's a huge movie in Italy, all-star cast, big budget.、Uh, it'll end up being the longest-running movie in Italy uh, uh, to that time. Ayn Rand had not given permission. She、uh, no participation, no payment, and was she totally unaware that the movie was even being made?、Uh, and this I find incredibly ironic, given that it was basically autobiographical. It was her life. Uh, that she had no involvement whatsoever. The movie was filmed in the Cinecittà Studios in Rome. They were a very uh, prestigious uh, film center, kind of like how we would think of Universal Studios or some other big studio in Hollywood. They made、uh, tremendous movies before the Rome, the Italian movie industry, kind of declined over the years. But even even some big American films. Uh, well, or, or films that American companies participated in, this epic, epic version of Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. It was all filmed at Cinecittà. But We the Living was filmed. The war was going on. The war was raging.、Uh, it was, in fact, there were very few films made after We the Living because the war was just taking over everything.、Um, There was no possibility of filming on location, and so、uh, everything about the movie, which is all set in St. Petersburg, Russia, had to be recreated on sound stages in Rome、um, in the summer, no less.、Um, so, a lot of things were created with miniatures. There weren't really、uh, a need for a whole lot of that in *We the Living*, but you'll see trains that are obviously not full-size trains and. Uh, some pretty elaborate sets with、uh, snowfall and、uh, winter scenes. All of these on a soundstage in the middle of Rome, Italy, in the middle of the summer. And Rosano Brazzi said this was one of the hardest things about playing the part: is they, they were roasting to death and they had to act like they were freezing. <laughs>、um, but it, but it, it worked. It, it comes across beautifully. There's a scene with a horse-drawn sleigh in the snow. Uh, it looks like it's outside.、Um, it was really quite an accomplishment what they did.、Um, one of the things that added to the authenticity of the film is that there were a lot of、uh, Russian expatriates living in Rome at that time, and they used them to the max in this film. There are so many extras in this film. Keep an eye out for scenes with crowds of people. There are just gazillions of them, and、uh, many, many of them、uh, were actual Russian expatriates. And also the production designers who、uh, worked on the sets,、um, the banners and slogans and things that you'll see on the walls. There were expatriate、uh, Russians who were there as、uh, creative consultants or, or designers on the movie.、Um, so one of the problems with having a script being written as you go along is it's very hard to gauge how long. That you're hitting the right length for the movie overall, and in fact, they began shooting more and more material, and realized that it couldn't possibly fit into one movie. So the studio decided, well, we're going to release it as two films, and we're going to keep it a secret and not tell the actors. <laughs> What could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> so it wasn't long before the actors.、Uh, Realized what was up, and there was a 
a bit of a, you know, flurry of a fight over that. Um, I think uh, Rosanna Brasi and Alita Valley stopped working for a few days. And anyway, they came around, they, they were paid more for doing a second film, and, and they just proceeded that way. Um, during the filming, uh, because this was Italy and the industries controlled by the fascists, they had to uh, allow fascist authorities to come in and look at the footage that was filmed. Um, and so there were frequent visits to the editing room, and the, uh, the authorities would want to view, uh, view the footage. They had a sense that this was always a hot potato of a film, and they had a sense that there could be scenes that could be very troublesome. And uh, so they would come, and the editors would show them, well, this is what we shot yesterday. But they would hold back some of the most controversial scenes, and they would kind of put those aside. And, and I'm told that once in a while, the authorities would come and look at a few scenes and say, wait a minute, is that it? There has to be more. I mean, they, they knew that studios had to shoot a certain amount of footage a number of minutes every day, and there was this a little game going on where the editors and the producers were hiding away the controversial scenes and the authorities was, thought there's got to be more and this went on for a while. Um, this is the fascist headquarters in Rome. Uh, a friendly looking place. <laughs> and there, that was headquarters for the uh, Ministry of Film, the Ministry of Propaganda. All of these departments oversaw film production and you can imagine what it was like making a, f a movie with those kind of conditions. So, you, you might wonder, what was controversial in the movie? And surprisingly, it's not so much uh, speeches that the characters said, although that certainly does play a part of it, but really what was the big problem for the authorities were, were the social conditions that were depicted in the film. Uh, in this scene, Kira is trying to get medical help for Leo, who uh, has a very serious condition and could die. And you'll see in the film a series of events where she tries to get help for him. Um, that was a very controversial scene for the fascist authorities because there were similar things going on in Italy. Um, and, and, there, and also, Leo looking for a job and he's told, uh, he's asked, are you a party member? And he said, no, I'm not a party. Well, you, you can't get a job if you're not a party member. Are you in the union? No, well, you can't get a job unless you're in the union. Well, I can't get in the union unless I have a job. Well, and this catch-22, that was very prevalent in Italy as well. And that was uh, something the fascists didn't like being portrayed at all. So, uh, the movie went on over the summer, and then uh, they found out that it was going to be featured at the Venice Film Festival in September of 1942. And that was, that was way earlier than they originally uh, thought, and so they had to rush filming. There were 14-hour days, typically, of filming. Um, the editors uh, had to frantically put everything together. And just a few days before Venice, they started putting back in these controversial scenes that, that they had hidden away uh, on other shelves. So the movie that did eventually play in Venice was the full movie with the controversial scenes, and it was sort of, we'll let the chips fall where they may now. These scenes have to be back in the film. Um, now this is uh, the scene uh, in the 
Piazza San Marco in Venice, Italy. If you've been to Venice, it's that huge square. Um, and they had a huge outdoor screen, and as you see, many, many hundreds of people. It was an amazing setting to premiere a movie. And that happened in early September of 1942. And the movie got uh, rave reviews overall. There were a few uh, fascist-associated reviewers and critics who panned it, but all the other, everyone else raved about it. Uh, it won at the festival something called the Volpe Cup, um, and it, so it was quite a sensation. And uh, it, then it went into release. And these are the two films that it was released as uh, originally. Uh, Noi Vivi, which means We the Living, and Adio Kira, which means Goodbye Kira. And what, what uh, viewers had to do, it was, you had to go to the theater twice. Um, you'd go to one theater, and, and in some cases, people would just run across town to where the other movie was playing and go to that theater and see the second film, or they'd come back uh, another day to see the other film. So again, very remarkable for a movie to get the kind of box office it did with you having to jump through hoops like that uh, to see it. So these are some of the early uh, posters and advertising that came out. Um, it, it created uh, quite a phenomenon that's comparable, if you know the story of Gone with the Wind here in America, which is the film everybody, the book everybody wanted to see made into a movie same was the case with Noi Vivi being made in, into a movie. Um, who would play the main parts? People uh, would uh, speculate endlessly about Gone with the Wind, same thing for We the Living. It was a huge, you can't exaggerate what a huge deal this was in Italy. Um, and, and for reasons I'm going to explain in a moment, uh, the, the, so much was resonating with the viewers that, too, created a, a sensation around the film. Um, excuse me one second. The oppressive conditions that were depicted in the film were way too similar to what was going on in Italy. And if the, if the authorities had thought more about what they were doing, they never would have let the film be released. But it was out there, it was a huge success, and people, the public was reacting to it. They, um, they had bread lines, they had unemployment, they had shortages, there was a lot of corruption in Italian government, just like is portrayed in the Russian government. Uh, Everything backfired uh, as far as what the authorities thought. They thought, this is going to make Russia look bad. And Russia was their wartime enemy. But they didn't see it any deeper than that. And, you know, the similarities in any authoritarian or totalitarian regime were right there to be seen. But amazingly, uh, nobody, nobody in the authorities picked up on it soon enough. Um, the people would walk around the streets with buttons with the name of the film. There were people naming their kids Kira. Uh, it, it, just, it was that level of, of impact on the country. Um, it, it came to be known as the film of nudging in the dark, and because people would be sitting in the theater and going, you know, 
because that, that was their life. They were saying, that's, that's our life, right up there on the screen. Um, several different people have said this, this was how the film was described, the film of nudging in the dark. Um, so I was mentioning that uh, people wore buttons and so forth. It, it, it was viewed as a sly indictment of the Mussolini regime without it being so direct. I mean, you could enjoy it and not worry about uh, that you went to see the movie. Um, so it was like the best of both worlds. The public was really enjoying dig, uh, sticking it to the Mussolini regime, and it was a really amazing movie to watch and you know, very powerful and enjoyable, so all that worked. But it all came to a screeching halt. The film was sent to some of the other Axis countries, like Spain, and eventually to Germany. And in Germany, Goebbels, on the far right there, who was Hitler's minister of propaganda, basically took one look at it and, and said, in effect, uh, you guys in Italy, are you out of your minds? <laughs> you, you know, you, you have to pull this movie immediately. And of course, being com coming from Hitler's right-hand man, uh, that got their attention. Mussolini uh, ordered the films to all be removed from theaters, all the prints to be co confiscated, and he ordered that all the negatives and other materials be uh, confiscated as well and destroyed. Um, there was to be nothing left of the film at this point. And so you might say, well, boy, is that, it? Is that the end? And here again, another hero stepped in. Um, Massimo Ferrara, who I mentioned before, took an extremely uh, risky and bold move. He sent in the negatives of another film um, in, in the hope and the expectation that the authorities wouldn't you know, run the film or look at it so carefully that they would realize that it wasn't We the Living. It was another film that they didn't value as highly as they did We the Living. And he went to one of the other production team members on We the Living and said, can you hide the negatives in your basement for the duration of the war? And that's exactly what happened. They, they, who knows what would have happened to these guys had they been caught. I mean, you're dealing with Mussolini and fascists, and they were, you know, you know no question disobeying uh, direct orders from, from that dictator. So, uh, wonder, so amazingly, the negatives were saved. They've survived the war. Um, and uh, this is Massimo Ferrara. I interviewed him in the late 1980s. It was his idea to hide the negatives. Uh, definitely, I think, a hero and one of the people responsible for the fact that we're, we're going to be watching the movie this evening. So movies were stored in, in the basement. Uh, the war came to its conclusion. Um, but then the studio, Scalera Film, uh, a few years after the war, went out of business. They had been very successful, for, but for whatever reasons, they went out of business. And their inventory of films went in different directions. Some sold to other companies. Some ended up in storage. And We the Living essentially went completely missing. Um, and it stayed that way for some 30 years, roughly 30 years. So jump, flash forward to the late 1960s, uh, two people who were colleagues of Ayn Rand, Henry Mark Holzer and Erica Holzer, uh, heard directly from Ayn Rand about the existence of this film. At that point, she was aware of it. She actually had seen 
one viewing of it in the late 40s. Rosano Brazzi and Alita Valley had come. She was living in, in L.A. at the time. And they came and they brought a film and they showed it to her. And she remembers really enjoying the film, except for uh, some propaganda that was inserted in the film. And I'll, I'll go into a little more detail about that in a moment. Um, so they couldn't believe it when she said there was a movie version of We the Living. Um, nobody really knew of the existence of it. And she said it's, it's probably long gone. Uh, she hadn't heard anything about it in some 30 years. And they said, if we somehow could find the film, would you agree to have it released here in America? And she said, well, on a, on a big condition. I did like the way the film was made, and I did like the performances of, of the main characters, but there were propaganda, lines of propaganda dialogue that were inserted into the film, so contrary to her philosophy that it's incredible that they thought they could do something like that and make it work. She said, Those, that dialogue has to come out somehow. And the, uh, Holzer said, well, absolutely. We'll, um, if we find the film, we'll, if we can't uh, remove that objectionable material, then it won't get released, but we'll make sure, uh, if we find it, that all of that happens. So they spent the better part of two years looking for the film. And this is, you know, before the internet, uh, easier ways to research things. They had to go to Italy several times and track people down, and it was like detective work. But eventually, uh, they did locate the negatives in, in Rome, amazingly. They had been in storage, gathering dust. The, the owners really didn't even know what, the value of what they had. And the Holzer had to sort of be poker-faced about it, because in their minds, they had found the Holy Grail. Uh, Hank Holzer actually used those, those words to describe uh, finally finding We the Living after all that time. Um, it was the full negatives of the whole film. They were incredibly thrilled uh, to find it. Um, it was difficult to see the film because they, on, they were only prints of a few reels of it, and the rest of it was still in negative form. And uh, Erica Holzer, who, who passed away a few years ago, often would tell this story about driving across Rome with these uh, negatives, which back in those days, uh, film negatives were made out of nitrate, which is a very flammable film material. It's not used anymore. Um, but th these were nitrate negatives. And she said, all right, and then I, we found out later that they were bouncing around in the trunk of the car and uh, thought that, you know, they could explode. There are very rare instances of, of that kind of film exploding, but very rare. Usually the problem would be they would catch fire. Um, but uh, Erica just was so passionate about the film, and she loved telling that story of, <laughs> about driving across Rome, and it got bigger and bigger every time she told the story. <laughs> it, it, I th you know, the last time I heard it, I think half of Rome was going to blow up. If <laughs> um, but they did... Uh, wind through the negatives manually. They, had to, they couldn't easily project it. But they saw that the whole story was there, and they bought the film on the spot. They bought all the materials with it. They had safety versions of the film materials made so that the nitrate, the fairly dangerous nitrate materials, wouldn't have to be shipped back to America. And then all of this material was sent um, to... Um, it was in storage like that, and it was sent to New York. 
Um, and at this point, uh, the project ended a, entered a whole new phase where the whole film had to be reviewed, decisions had to be made about, okay, what's this authorized version, this version authorized by Ayn Rand going to look like? Uh, what's it going to entail? And how, do, how are these offensive propaganda dialogue, how is that going to be removed? And this is, this is where I enter the picture. Um, I saw this tiny little one-paragraph mention of the film in a, in a publication called The Objectivist, a little green publication that uh, came out for several years back then. And I did something very out of character. I, I wrote a letter to the Holzers. I didn't know them and offered my services as, as an editor, even though I was only an assistant editor at the time. Um, and, and then I, after sending it, thinking, well, this is... What, what did I do that for? I don't know anybody. I don't have a resume that would impress anybody. But amazingly enough, they did respond to me. I went in and, and had meetings. I started working on the film. Uh, ended up co-producing the film with them. And now I own the film, and I'm here at the Ayn Rand Institute presenting it. So it's amazing what uh, one little letter can do. Um, so one of the first things that happened is uh, a, a viewing of the film, and, and for a lot of people, it would be their first viewing. And, uh, um, only, uh, for Ayn Rand, it was only the second viewing, and she had, it was like 25 years earlier that she'd seen it the first time. Now, this device is called a moviola, and everyone was gathered together. And when I say everyone, I mean the, uh, the collective. If, if those of you not familiar with that means, Ayn Rand had a very close inner circle um, that was, um, ironically, they named themselves the collective. And they, and they were people that she associated with most of the time. Uh, and they were all gathered together to see this film. And you've got to picture the scene. Um, everyone's in folding chairs, uh, gathered around this tiny little screen that's only about five inches diagonal. Um, and the film is being run in reels of film, 10-minute reels, and it hasn't been edited yet, so it had a total of a four-hour running time. And it was in Italian, and it wasn't subtitled yet. Um, so 10 minutes at a time, new reels were loaded up on the, on the moviola, and I think it was Erica Holzer would would read from this script, which had side-by-side um, -side Italian with English translation, and, and would read the dialogue as we went through the entire four hours. And so how, what was everyone's reaction? My recollection is everybody was enthralled. And every time a reel changed, they couldn't wait for the next reel. And this went on for quite a few hours because of all the reel changes and the four-hour running time. Um, um, it was, they could, you could see even then, without the subtitles, without the editing, that it was just such a powerful, powerful film. So, at this point, you have Ayn Rand finally having input into this film that's so personal to her and so autobiographical. And it was her decision that the two films should be combined, that... Um, Certain subplots were not necessary to the main storyline, that they could come out, 
but the main storyline between Kira, Leo, and Andre is going to, would stay totally intact. Um, and then we worked on figuring out how do, how do these propaganda lines come out. And I don't want to exaggerate how many propaganda lines there were. I would doubt that it's even 2% of all the dialogue. But it was just so offensive and so contrary to her philosophy that uh, it was unquestioned that it had to come out. So after that initial screening, it was really just Ayn Rand and myself sitting side by side at a rewind table, uh, similar to this one in the picture, going back and forth in the film and figuring out what could be done and what scenes uh, you know, absolutely had to stay and, and in some cases some uh, scenes could go and discussing uh, propaganda. In some cases it was just uh, a matter of changing the subtitles if it wasn't that objectionable. Um, but she was very specific about what she wanted and uh, I was shocked at uh, how much she had thought everything out was in, ahead. There wasn't really uh, uh, me giving her a lot of advice, I can tell you that. She, she knew what she wanted. She understood the editing process, which amazed me because that was a time period where not many people understood film editing. And uh, it all went extremely smoothly. Um, she had her careful notes. We would meet in the evening uh, when the studio uh, was closed for the day in, in a little editing room and dim the lights and just start going through reel after reel and making the decisions. Um, she had her, her notes about uh, things that she specifically wanted to change. And I, I just, I remember being extremely impressed with the sharpness uh, and the focus that she had on, on what needed to be done. She was very, and a very amiable and warm person to, to work with. Uh, which was great for me because I was just a kid and still very nervous. Um, one of the, the most difficult scenes is near the end of the film when the character of Andre, standing in the center there, has to face a purge committee and explain his actions. And without giving too, uh, away too much of the plot, he you know, has this quite awakening to what this philosophy that he's been supporting in, so, in the Soviet Union and what it really means. And uh, that gets him into deep trouble and he's in front of a purge committee. But that's where the fascist centers went a little bit crazy, inserting propaganda, and that had to go. Um, and I, I will explain after the movie runs, if, if people are interested, some of the drastic steps we had to take to fix that scene. I'd rather not do it ahead of time so that you're not thinking about it during the movie, but I'm happy to talk about it later. Um, the good news is she was really pleased with the performances. And she had written uh, many years earlier to, to her good friend how, how much uh, she enjoyed the performances. Um, and, and she felt assured that all the changes uh, that she was asking for would be made, and they were. Um, and then uh, entered, we're running short on time, so I'm going to go a little more quickly, but we uh, entered in a period of getting better translation of the subtitles, finding nuances in the way they were translated. Say again, Anna? Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Um, so the film got completed. All the changes that Ayn Rand asked for were successfully completed. Um, and the film, uh, we went looking for distribution for it. And one of the ways you find distribution is to take it to film festivals. And the movie had its American premiere at the Telluride Film Festival in September of uh, 1986. And that's a wonderful festival, by the way, if you ever have an opportunity to go to that. It's in this in incredibly beautiful area of Colorado and quite prestigious. People come from all over in Hollywood and a lot of celebrities go to it. Uh, and it was a thrill to have the movie open. This is the original poster when we first released the film. And this is myself and the holster celebrating uh, the opening of the movie. Um, it played in theaters around the country. I think about 60 to 70 theaters, generally, you know, art house kind of movie theaters. Got incredibly good reviews everywhere. Uh, if you're interested in seeing them or, or learning other things about the movie, uh, the website for the movie is wethelivingmovie.com. Make sure to put movie in there because there are other We the Living websites. Um, there's uh, excerpts from a lot of the re, uh, reviews there. And then after a few years of distribution, and it did play in some other countries, basically it went into its afterlife as home video. Um, VHS originally, and then uh, DVD. But the problem was um, all, the, the, all the home video versions, in fact, even the theatrical release that was shown in theaters, all still had scratches and dirt and flaws and defects that the negatives had picked up from 1942 and onward, um, and they were just sort of baked into the film, and there was really nothing at that time that you could, that you could do about it. And uh, so for 30-something years, the only version of the movie available is standard definition, so not, not real sharp, and full of scratches and dirt and so forth. And I felt that... Um, it was time to do something about that. And we initially started out just to make a high-definition version of the film. So we still had the film materials, and we had those scanned again in high-definition. And my original plan was, well, great, it's going to be this really sharp, beautiful version of the film. But I was also aware that there was new software, new digital technology that could enable us to get rid of dirt and scratches. And so we started working on that. And the more I got into that, then I thought, well, I can, we can also fix that. And then one thing led to another. It really didn't start out as being, oh, I'm going to restore the film, <laughs> but it ended up that way. Um, we're going to, uh, in a moment, run a little video showing the before and after of uh, mainly the, the high-definition part of it. Um, and so go ahead and run that, that sh uh, short video. You can see big differences in the shading on their faces and textures that 
just can't see in the standard definition. All the speckles and dirt are gone from the restored roof. So that was how it, the work started, and then we got more and more into this wonderful digital software that was they could uh, repair these problems. And I, I did a little sort of off-the-cuff video of working on that. It's a little bit long, so guys, I may ask you to cut it off at a certain point because it goes on for a while. But you can run that video. The original high-definition version of the video has quite a bit of dust and scratches. So we're using specialized software that's specifically designed to remove dust and scratches and improve graininess, excessive graininess that might be in the film. And the first thing it does is analyze each scene, actually each frame even, of the film to see what it's dealing with. Um, we have a lot of uh, control over how it does that analysis. We don't want to over have it overdo it and change the, the look of the film. So it deals with that uh, graininess first, and then uh, we the software analyzes and tries to figure out what is dust or scratch or dirt. It, it's able to determine what is a scratch and what is something that's intended to be left in the film. And it, it does a, a good job, an amazingly good job, actually, of figuring that out. And then it uh, it repairs the defects by cloning pixels that are next to the scratch and, and basically pasting them over the scratch so they so they disappear. And our goal is to really make the film look like it did when it was released in 1942. Here's the before and here's after. It doesn't completely remove every spot and scratch but it removes well over 90% of them. So this is before, you'll notice a big white uh, scratch on the right and dozens and dozens of white speckles. And then again, uh, after the treatment, it uh, cleans it up quite beautifully. So that's before and that's after. Okay, you can, you can cut that off. It, go, it goes on a little bit too long. I, I, I just loved this when I was working on it. It was just like magic to see these things disappear, and you, you would get this feeling like, wow, I'm restoring the Mona Lisa or something. <laughs> it was a great feeling. Um, so we sort of backed into this uh, very elaborate restoration. Every scene in the film was done and then redone and then done again uh, because the software that would fix one thing didn't like software that would fix another thing and we had to figure out how to make them all work together. Uh, it was a lot of trial and error. Uh, but in the, in the end it, it came out beautifully. You, you'll see that uh, this evening. Um, and even before we were completely done with the film, um, we uh, 
mentioned it and we submitted it to a very prestigious film festival in Italy where they only run and honor restored films. It's a fabulous film festival. Every film that's shown is, is a classic, if not a masterpiece. Uh, and they're all beautifully restored. Uh, they saw a sample of the work we were doing and we were invited to uh, take the film to Il Cinema Ritrovato, which is um, in Bologna, Italy. It's an annual event. Boy, if you're looking for a great uh, uh, event to go to and you're a lover of films, you definitely want to go there all week long. They, they show these amazing films in, in venues all over the Bologna, Italy, which is a beautiful city. And they show some of them in this giant plaza in the middle of Bologna on a giant screen to upwards of 6,000 people. And they do that every night uh, for the duration of the festival. Um, wonderful people to work with. And all this just happened last week. <laughs> we uh, showed it there and we... Uh, my wife and I jumped on a plane and came right here afterwards. Um, it, it was quite an honor for them to select the film, and, and there's also a practical value in it, in that our next phase is approaching distributors to get the widest possible distri distribution for the film. And the best scenario is that you have multiple distributors who want the film competing with each other. Uh, that's not a, a, always an easy situation to create. And when a film is accepted uh, this way, it sets the stage, it gives uh, in credibility. Uh, distributors don't always have much of in independent thinking about what makes a good film, and so to have an endorsement by a film festival is enormously valuable. So uh, that, that's me with a, a translator who translated into Italian. Uh, the other thing about this film festival is all the movies have English subtitles, so it's just a joy to, to go to that festival. Um, so, next up for the film, we look for a great distributor to work with. Um, and if we don't find a great distributor, we're going to distribute it ourselves. I've done that before. I've done it for years and years after the initial distributor uh, distributed the theatrical version of the film. Uh, and uh, for a variety of reasons, we weren't happy with what they were doing. And we self-distributed for quite a few years after that. But we still, for the widest distribution, we do want to make a great deal with a great distributor. That's going to be our next uh, phase of the film. In addition to uh, raising the money for a, a really, really good public relations campaign, because it's just tragic to have a beautiful film like the one you're going to see tonight, and people don't see it because they're, they're not made aware of it. And that takes money. Um, and so we're in the phase of raising money for that. Um, we've already uh, uh, vetted or interviewed uh, PR companies and some distributors. There's already interest. Uh, we're getting great reaction to it. Um, and it, it couldn't be more important, this, this phase of it, because movies, and uh, you probably all have heard this before, but there's really not a more powerful medium for conveying ideas. You, you have people sitting in the dark in a the theater, their attention is, can only be focused on the screen, and they're being impacted by emotions and ideas and sound and music. It's incredibly powerful. Uh, and here you have Ayn Rand's 
wonderful We the Living story, very accessible to anybody, um, because it's before she uh, developed the ideas so uh, beautifully and uh, spectacularly, really, in, in Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead. Um, there's really, uh, I've experienced people who thought they hated Ayn Rand reacting just so positively to this film. And I think it's, it's one of the uh, most important ways we can get Ayn Rand's ideas out there through this vehicle of a movie that, that everybody loves to watch movies. And this is, this is an Ayn Rand movie. Um, so that's, we're at that phase now. Um, I, we're hoping that some, I mentioned heroes during the talk, we hope that some new heroes will step up and help us get this kind of support that's needed. Um, the, uh, please feel free to come and talk to me. Uh, we'll, we have some cards that will give you some information that we'll have outside. Uh, you can always uh, email us. We uh, read all the emails that come in and respond if you, if you think there's a way to help. And later when the movie comes out, if you all keep in mind to promote it on social media, that'll be enormously helpful. Um, we're going to start the Q&A, but if, if you do uh, stick around, I just a final thought after the Q&A, but feel free to uh, go to the microphones. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Scott. This is fascinating. How many copies of the film survived World War II? Were you working with the Ferrara one that he sequestered or some other? Well, to be not too technical about it, there, there are really no full prints of the film that survived that we are aware of. The negatives of the movie were what were hidden away and survived the war. And when the Holzers found those negatives, they made safety versions of that, and from that, uh, the prints that went into theaters were made. So there were, they, by the time we released the film, there were seven or eight prints of the film that circulated around the country. Was the Ferrara one the one that the Holzers found? Well, when you say the Ferrara one, yes, the one that Ferrara asked his colleague to hide in the basement, yeah, that, those negatives were what they found. He, those actual negatives, which later went into storage and, and their people lost track of them, Holzer tracked that down, uh, identified them as We the Living, and bought them. The, the film, Scalera films couldn't re-release the film after the war because they had never gotten the rights from Ayn Rand. They wanted to. And they, in fact, they sent Alita Valley and Rosano Brazzi to meet with Ayn Rand with a print of the film. And she loved the film, she loved the performances. But as you can imagine, she was not happy that this movie had been made without any participation on her part. She thought there was a possibility of Hollywood doing their own version of We the Living. And so it never came to fruition that she gave them rights. They couldn't do anything with the film, so they stored it away. And then all these years later, the, the Holzers found it. If it weren't for them, if it weren't for them, we would not be seeing this film. It's amazing. We have a question from the online audience. It says, you mentioned that some work needed to be done on the subtitles. How different ideologically are the subtitles compared to the Italian audio in the final version? Oh, boy, how different is a hard... <laughs> Uh, thing to quantify. 
Any, anybody who's in, involved with translation knows you can't just make a literal translation because p different languages have different ways of expressing things. So you have to find the right phrasing that makes the most sense in a given language. So there are many cases where it is word for word a literal translation, but there are many cases where the true meaning of what's being said is better expressed colloquially in the way English is spoken. So it's a mixture of, of different approaches to get to the truest um, uh, translation. We, all through the process, we kept referring to the novel. And whenever it was possible to take the language directly from the novel, uh, that was done. So the titles um, had quite a bit of Ayn Rand's word-for-word uh, -word dialogue in it wherever that was possible. Yes? Who among the principal cast and crew, to your knowledge, read the novel? Uh, Alessandrini, uh, any of the principal cast members? Well, I don't have any direct knowledge, but I know it would be highly unusual for Alessandrini as the director to not have read the novel. Um, but I'd be speculating beyond that. Um, it's typical for lead actors to, to read the underlying novel, but, but not necessarily. They, sometimes they'd rather just take, uh, take it from the script and go with it that way. So I, unfortunately, I don't have any direct information about how many of them uh, read the novel. Thank you. Thank you very much for the uh, information. Sure. Uh, it was, did the negatives include uh, more than just the movie, uh, outtakes, uh, things that weren't used, or even the complete shooting um, uh, film. And the second question I wanted to ask, is it possible, I was a film student, I'd love to do this, to see the original that was uh, released in, so I could see what was changed and yeah. be fascinating to see that. But the good news is it, it is possible to see the deleted scenes in fact, on the standard definition release that we've had out for quite a few years, we do have the deleted scenes on there, but they're presented as deleted scenes. And that is uh, uh, at the request of Ayn Rand and a vow we made to Ayn Rand. She said specifically she never wants the film released in anything but the order that was worked out uh, with editing the film. But that said, those scenes are not gone. They're there and can be viewed uh, for you know, historical or whatever purposes. They just, we cannot release the film by integrating those scenes back into it. We wouldn't do that, she didn't want it, and we're not gonna do it. Uh, but happily, you can, you can see them anyway. But there's no, like, the version that was released in 1942, there's no version to compare to see the full earlier release. We don't have any version like that. Uh, I do uh, occasionally hear about very, very poor copies that were made, copies of copies of copies in Italy. Uh, I saw one that was on a DVD. It, you, you think your eyeballs are going to fall out. It was so blurred and screwed up. Um, I don't recommend it. I, okay. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Thank you. We have another question from the online audience. It says, what kind of help is needed to get distribution for this film? Which is the most important way to help? Uh, to be very direct about it, money. Um, it's, it's, we're entering a very expensive part of the process, uh, both the promotion and, and the distribution. 
Um, this is where, uh, you, if you know anything about how movies are released, this is where studios spend a ton of money. Um, it's it just the nature of the beast that it takes you to get people's attention. You'll notice when a movie comes out, it's constantly running in TV ads and so forth. We're, we're not going to be doing any campaign like that. But this film could easily be overlooked if, if real money isn't spent on, on the promotion, the publicity, the distribution. And that's the phase we're entering into. We're trying to build up as big a budget as we can. We've had some wonderful support so far. Um, our executive producer, Lynn Florkowitz, uh, several other uh, people and organizations have, have uh, really stepped up, but there's a long way to go. And we're really hoping if any of you uh, are, can uh, support this, we'd love to talk to you about it. You'd be doing a wonderful service because it would get this film in front of more people. It potentially can be seen by anyone in the world because it will be streaming. It'll be on a major streaming platform as well as uh, probably uh, Blu-ray DVD and, and possibly other formats. We hope to also show it in a few select theaters but mainly, it's going to be watchable uh, through streaming platforms. But yes, if, if, if there's any way you can uh, support what we're doing, please come and talk to me, um, either here at the conference or get in touch with me uh, at the email. And I really appreciate you all thinking uh, of what you can do. Um, yes, go ahead. Uh, have you seen the Korean TV series, Crash Landing into Love? Uh, which seems to have been made by a fan of Ayn Rand, and most of the allusions in it are to Atlas Shrugged, but there are also a few visual allusions to the We the Living film. Uh, have you seen it? And if you have seen it, what do you think of it? First time I'm hearing about it. So, so I'm sorry, I, I, don't, I don't know. What's the name of this again? Crash Landing into Love. And where, and where is it seen? Um, okay, there are, there are visual illusions. The longest of them is uh, trying to escape North Korea uh, in a smuggler's boat. Very much like the sequence in the film. Well, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Anything that uh, has those kind of... Allusions to We the Living. Hmm? It's on Netflix. Netflix, okay. It's, I hear it's on Netflix. Thank you very much. You talked about how big the uh, impact was uh, of the film on the Italian uh, public viewers. Are you aware at all what the impact of the book itself was in, in 37, was it, you know, the, the date when it was published? Or, or even how many copies, roughly, it, it sold? I don't know, have exact figures on that, but I know it was big, and it did better in Italy than it did in the U.S., which is a surprising thing to learn. Um, it did well enough that the filmmakers were encouraged to make a, a film out of it, um, but I don't have any specific figures on that. Yes. Hi. Uh, Hi. First time I've ever heard We the Living, the movie, or any other version, so that was my first experience. Never read the book either. Uh, for the music, I thought that sounded very lovely. I was wondering, is there a catalog of the songs, or is there even a soundtrack? 
How could I get the music? There's, there's no available soundtrack, but if you uh, Google Renzo Rossellini, he was the composer. Uh, if the name Rossellini sounds familiar, it's because his brother, Roberto Rossellini, was quite an, an illustrious director in Italy. And his uh, niece, Isabella Rossellini, was an actress uh, well-known here in, the, in America for a while. But Renzo Rossellini composed the music. And you'll also notice uh, tonight when you watch the film, there's just an enormous amount of uh, Russian traditional music playing in the background in various scenes. They made really a, a maximum use of what, to me anyway, sounds like authentic Russian music. But the themes are beautiful. Um, the soundtracks that we got were already mixed together with audio, with, with dialogue, I mean. And so, and without, uh, we would have to re-record the music in order to release a separate music soundtrack. We just don't have any separate version of it from Italy. But it's something to consider, having it re-recorded, because it is beautiful music. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.